0: Amen. I'm so blessed to see all these sisters leading us in worship today. I know we have, we had our couple brothers too. God bless you. (laughs) So blessed. Um, It's Women's History Month, right? Amen. All right. Our text today is from John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn there. We're going to read from verses 1 through verse 17. Simon Peter said to him, "Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, my hands and my head." Jesus said to him, "The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Thanks be to God. We are in a sermon series, prepared to Build, as Pastor Jason mentioned. We've been talking about the foundations of our faith, prayer and obedience. Um, And then we looked at the gifts that God equips the church with. We talked about spiritual gifts. We also talked about talents and how those things are kind of different, but all of them used for the kingdom. And now today we're starting our section on serving. What do we do with these gifts? What does it look like to serve? And what's our model for service? Uh, We've said from the beginning, right? We're not here to entertain you. We are an equipping church. We want to equip you to serve inside the church and outside the church. So, you know, it's natural to want to go to other models, um, other churches, look at how they're doing it and kind of copy what they're doing and replicate what's what's working well for them. Um, but the only model that I'm interested in following is the model of Jesus. So we're looking at this passage today as a model for how we are to serve God and how we are to serve others. We all know this passage. It's a very familiar passage. When Jesus is, you know, he performs the most humble act of service to his disciples. We know that in those days, right, they all washed their feet before our meal. We all, they all washed their feet before going into someone's house because they were on dirt roads, they wore sandals, your feet got dirty all the time. And that, the, the task of washing a guest's feet, it was the lowliest of tasks. And we see Jesus humbling himself to do this task when he was the teacher, the rabbi, the guest of honor. All right, so let's set the scene. This is before the feast of the Passover. Our children are here today. It's family service. Our children have been learning about Moses and the Exodus and all of that, so they might be familiar with this. What was the Passover? The Passover was the last of the ten plagues that God sends on the Egyptians because Pharaoh denied setting the Hebrews free after hundreds of years and generations of slavery. He sends the plague of the firstborn. That uh, He gives instructions to his people with all these specifications of what to do, which lamb to pick, from which flock, uh, who the neighbors to share it with, how to prepare it, um, how to eat it even, like standing up, there's just very specific directions that he gives to his people. And uh, he says, with the blood of this lamb, paint it on your doorposts. And God was going to send death upon every firstborn in that country that night, except for the doors, for the households that had this blood. When he saw the blood of the lamb on those doors, then the death would pass over that house. And it was this plague, when Pharaoh lost his firstborn, it was this plague that finally released his heart to set God's people free. And this is why the people of God celebrated the Passover every year in remembrance of that great act after 400 years of slavery. Can you imagine? Finally being set free and released to worship their God. So it's a somber night. And it's a somber night personally for Jesus. Right out of the gates in verse 1 of this chapter, we hear a shift in the language of where Jesus is. Right? So when Jesus performs his first miracle in Cana, when he turns water into wine, what does he say to Mary, his mother? When Mary's like, Jesus, we need more wine. Can you do this? What does he say to her? He says, woman, why are you, why are you asking this of me? My time has not yet come. And later on um, in John verses seven, in chapter 7, uh, his ministry is in full swing. And uh, the more he's ministering, the angrier the Jews get. And he knows that they're really angry with him. So he sends his disciples ahead um, to this feast without him. because he And he tells them, because my hour has not yet come. And again, we see in John 7:30 when the Jews are seeking to arrest him. It says, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet in verse 1 of this chapter of our text, he says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew... That his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Do you hear the somberness there? The time has come, and we all know what the Passover, what is happening with his death, that he is about to become the ultimate Passover lamb for the salvation of the world, right? He's about to shed his blood, So that we're all painted in it and the death that we deserve could pass over us. The time his hour had come for him to leave this world and leave the ones he loved and face the purpose, face this death that he came to die. I think a lot of times we cut Jesus short in his humanity because we read the Bible, we read the text, and we're just like, well, he's Jesus. Of course he did that. But in doing so, we don't, we do injustice to the fact that Jesus was fully man. We can wonder and marvel and try to debate and understand the theology behind that for the rest of our lives, and people have tried. (laughs) But he was fully man. Have you ever stopped to think about what that was like for Jesus? Have you ever stopped to think about what Jesus might have been tempted with? The Bible says that we don't have a high priest who doesn't understand what we're going through, but we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. That he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So the first distinction there is that being tempted is not the sin. Jesus was tempted in every way, but he didn't give in to those temptations. He lived without sin. What might he have been tempted with in this hour, in these last hours on earth? We know, actually, that he was tempted not to die this death, right? He prayed, Lord, if there's another way, remove this cup from me. There's the temptation. And here's the resistance. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And I don't think it's a stretch, especially as Jesus got older and his biological clock is ticking. Maybe he was tempted. You know, maybe the the thought crossed his mind once or twice, what it would be like to find a wife, start a family, To grow old on this earth, to experience romance, fatherhood, the other choice. Why not in every way? Maybe he thought about sticking around just long enough so he could take care of his mother. We know he thought about her on the cross. He told John, this is your mother. Take care of her. He might have been tempted. Let me just take care of my mom and then I'll leave. But he didn't give into it. Maybe he thought once or twice about entrepreneurship, like a lot of people in this area of the bait do. Maybe he leaned into that temptation of dreaming of creativity and ingenuity and business and, oh, what he could do with his carpentry skills if he just had the right investors. In every way, we don't know what he was tempted with, but we do know that he was without sin. He never gave in to those temptations, but he still experienced them. He still had to resist them. Now, if you knew that it was your last day on earth, how would you spend it? How would you be tempted to spend your last day? I hope this isn't gonna be too much spoiler alert, but we're obsessed with the show, The Last of Us, right now on HBO. It's like a zombie show. this is, this is just an illustration, guys, okay, of what the world would call the perfect last day. This episode three, where in the zombie apocalypse, this guy who was a survivalist before the zombie apocalypse happened, he, like, created this haven, right? He was stocked with uh, arms and ammo. He knew how to hide. Um, he locked down this remote town that he lived in well enough that in the zombie apocalypse, he lived a great life. He had food, he had electricity, he had all the resources he needed. So while the world was going crazy, he lived in this perfect, untouched haven. And uh, he rescues a guy one day who stumbles onto his property, and they end up having a wonderful romance and just just living in this this untouched, safe place. And um, in the juxtaposition of the zombie apocalypse, they get to grow old and die of natural causes. And they decide one day, this is gonna be their last day. And they spend the perfect last day together. This is I wanna do all these wonderful things that I love doing with you, and then we're gonna eat that, my favorite meal that you cook, and then we're gonna take these pills with our wine, and we're gonna die a peaceful death. And I think by society's standards, by cultural standards, that's like the perfect last day eat your favorite things, do your favorite things with your favorite people, and then die a peaceful, painless death. And this is how different Jesus is from us. In his last day, in his last hours, what does he choose to do? He loves them. Till the end. In another translation, it says, He showed them the full extent of His love. And he, John emphasizes this in his, in his writing. He loved them till, he loved, having loved His own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. It's this picture of pouring out, I have loved you, and I'm pouring out and giving you everything that I have left. In His ultimate last act of love, this is how Jesus chooses to spend his last days on earth. So how did Jesus serve? How did Jesus serve and how is that a model for how we are to serve? Jesus served first and foremost knowing that his service was an assignment from God. We are all too focused on people when we serve. We want to reserve our love and our service for people who deserve it. I can be nice to you because you were nice to me. I don't mind doing this for you because you're a good person. Or how about, I actually want to serve you because you've got some status and I want to be associated with you. No one will question me if I serve here with you. Now I know everyone can identify with this, right? You know when you're driving and there's this person who's trying to change lanes way too late and they're kind of trying to eye you you know, to see if you can get in. Whether or not I feel like a good person in my service completely hinges on the fact, not when I'm doing this to let them in, but if after I do this, they do a little wave and look at me in the mirror, right, thank you, then I feel good. I'm like, all right, I did a good thing. But if I let you cut in front of me and I don't even get to this, then my, to- my attitude totally changes. I Man. <laughs> You don't deserve to be, I you know, you sure thought about that too much. And anyway, you all know what that's like, right? That's kind of how it is when we're serving. We only want to give our hearts and our service when we know someone's going to appreciate it. Or when we get what we're due. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't discriminate who he serves. He is performing this act of humility, literally the lowliest of chores. To who? Someone who had it in his heart to betray him. Let's look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Whose work is this? The devil. We're going to talk about the devil. Because he's here and he's a main character, and we got to talk about him more. This is the devil's work. He had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. What does Ephesians 6 tell us? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against rulers, authorities the principalities, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I love that John makes a distinction that the devil had put into Judas's heart. They are not one and the same. I have to remember this, even in my relationships, right? There's a big difference in saying you're mean and that was mean. This makes it personal. This calls out the behavior. One addresses the person. One addresses the action separate of the person. I have to remember this in my marriage. I have to remember this with my children. People are not the problem. There are our principalities that we fight against. We are not the poor choices that we make. We are not the words that we say when we're at our worst points. We are not the things that we do. There is a real spiritual battle going on, and we have to remember that we are an assignment from God to recognize those things. And here's the thing the devil loves to make us think that we're fighting against each other. He's the great deceiver. Now look at this progression, okay? This says that the devil had already put into the heart. It's a prior work. The act of betrayal didn't happen right then and there. The devil had planted deceit in Judas's heart. He plants things there. That's how he works. He's cunning and he's deceitful. I'm gonna tell you right now, we need to know our enemy because he's been around a lot longer than you and he's a lot smarter than you. He didn't tell Eve to go and eat the apple. He planted deceit in her heart. He said, did God really say? And he made her question who God is. But what does the text say? The text says, after he planted, he said, did God really say? But then it says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. He planted deceit. She did the sin. He makes you question God. He didn't come to Judas and tell him, sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He planted deceit in his heart and it was left to fester. But who made the deal with the chief priests and the Pharisees? Who led them to the garden where Jesus was arrested because he knew he'd be there? In John eighteen three, it says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and the chief priests of the Pharisees went there. He planted the deceit in Judas's heart. But Judas did the sin. He doesn't have to get you to carry out the sin. He just has to plant deceit in your heart. And if we're not careful against this, you're not even, you're not even a battle for the enemy. You're going to go and do the sin. The devil won't tell you to have an affair. He'll plant deceit. He'll make you question, God, this woman, are we really compatible You'll go and do the sin yourself. Left to fester, the devil won't tell you, children, to go and call your mom stupid. He'll plant deceit in your heart. He'll make you think, Do they really? They don't even understand me. Do they really know what's best? They're not growing up with the things we grow. They don't understand. They just don't understand. me. Left to fester, unguarded, you will carry out the sin yourself. Judas was not the only one to betray Jesus that night. Eventually, one by one, all the disciples left. My favorite, my favorite author, Philip Yancey, says this, when it became clear that Jesus' kind of kingdom led to a cross and not a throne, every one of them slunk away into darkness. Judas was not the first or the last person to betray Jesus, merely the most famous Ooh, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We need to stay on guard against this. How do we do that? How do we serve when there's all these crazy things going around? Now, most of you won't be called to serve someone who has it in their heart to betray you, okay? But you will have to deal with someone, at least who annoys you. (laughs) Just irritates you for some reason or another. You just, just hear the way they laugh and like, oh, I don't know why, but God is going to put you with those people. Maybe there's a coworker who has it out for you. That one person you didn't want to get stuck on a team with, but you did. For some of us, it might feel like death. How do we serve those people? How do we wash the feet of people who don't even understand what we're doing? How do we serve the ones who have offended us? How do we serve the ones that we just don't like? It's by remembering in verse 3. In verse 2, I love how these verses are together. In verse 2, the devil had already put it into Judas' heart. But in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and he was going back to God, everything hinges on God. Our assignment is from God. We serve not because someone deserves it or not, but because we know that we are on assignment from God. Amen. Whatever the devil has put into someone's heart, we know the things that God has placed into our hands. And that is what enables us to serve. He has given you authority to trample on these forces. Yes. He has given you authority over these things. Yes. And because we know what the Father has put into our hands, We can face and even serve and love whoever, whatever the devil has put into their hearts. Service is first and foremost an assignment from God. Every assignment is sacred. Nothing is beneath your dignity. Nothing is beneath your skill set. Nothing is beneath your resume or your pedigree. There's no sense in thinking that you are overqualified for an assignment. Jesus was the last person who should have been washing feet. This chore was actually considered so low that even Jewish servants weren't allowed to do this. They would call on Gentiles because it was even below their station, even though they were a servant. But because they were Jewish servants, they couldn't do it. They would have Gentile servants washing the feet of guests. But hierarchies aren't made by God. They're made by us. If Jesus is doing this, that means there is, this work is sacred. Yeah. Philippians 2 says, don't hold yourself above others. Regard others as more significant than yourself. That's the heart of God. One of the best Places that we see this in the Bible is in Acts chapter 6, right? Now, this is the beginning of the church. This is the establishment of the church when the first churches are starting. And there are thousands, hundreds being added to their number every day. But there's a disagreement breaks out over the lunch line, pretty much, okay? The the the, the um, Hebrew Jews, the, their widows are getting more than the Hellenistic Jews, okay? And I don't have the time to get into all the history of that, but, you know, simply put, it was a case of racism. And so they're like, you know, this is not fair. We need someone to watch, to, to um, supervise this. And there's a disagreement about food. So they choose seven people to oversee this ministry, this lunch ministry. And this blows my mind because it is so different from how we do service in church today. In verse 3, it says, what was the requirements for this lunch line? Verse 3 it says, to be full of the spirit and wisdom. What? To serve lunch? The requirement was to be full of the spirit and wisdom. They chose seven men to be full of the spirit and wisdom to carry out the seemingly menial task, which tells me there is no menial work in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as work that is more spiritual or less spiritual. We have made it so unnecessarily difficult and political and confusing in our churches today. We set people up on pedestals and we teach them and train them to be leaders. We send them to leadership seminars and we want the degrees. Everyone wants to be the person on stage because that gets the glory, but no one wants to set up chairs in the morning. Everyone wants to be on the worship team because you're seen but no one wants to sit in Sunday school because we can't see the glory in that. And we do it to each other too. Oh no, you're overqualified to do this. Save that for the people who don't have the degrees. Save that job for the people who don't have the giftings. We talk so much about leadership. I'm afraid we've lost sight of servanthood. In verse 5, of Acts chapter 6, after this, this crazy qualification that you have to be full of the Spirit to serve lunch, no one fights with that. What does it say? It pleased the whole gathering. They were in agreement that even with this task, yes, it is good, it is right to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We have gotten so good at Deifying people, but God became flesh. That's our model. Jesus himself touches the lowliest of tasks, the lowliest of people, the lowliest of places. Every work is sacred because it is not about the work. It is about you doing the work. When you are full of spirit and wisdom, there's no task through which God cannot reveal his glory. Our lunch crew in Act, look what it says after they picked their seven men, full of spirit and wisdom. They set, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them for a lunch line. We're used to that for like an ordination, Right? What if we took every work this sacredly? What if we regarded every task with this sort of esteem? Do you understand that the third person of God himself, the Holy Spirit, lives in you? And it's the presence of God that transforms an ordinary bush in an arid desert to holy ground. So don't come and tell me when this Holy Spirit lives in you that there is such thing as a menial task. Everything is sacred because you are the temple of God. That cannot be taken away from you because of what you do or not. Jesus, washing his disciples' feet, didn't take anything away from him. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, resumed his place. Jesus resumed his place. It didn't take nothing away from him. He resumed his place. Teacher, rabbi, honorary guest. God became flesh. He left heaven. He came down to earth. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ. But he resumes his place on the throne. It is not what we do that determines who you are, child of God. It is who you are that makes what you do sacred. Every assignment is sacred. The blessing then, what does Jesus say? Is in the doing. In verse 17 it says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do do them. See, we can read the Bible, and we can dissect it, we can study it, we can learn about Jesus, and we can admire him. Gosh, he was good. God, he was beautiful. But Jesus' teachings are not meant to be admired. They are meant to be done. Blessed are you if you do them. The the blessing is not in the knowing. The blessing is in the doing. Some of you might be frustrated with your walk. Some of you might be frustrated with church. Some of you might be frustrated. Just, I don't know why, Just I'm not happy. I wonder how much are you doing? That's where the blessing is found. I see this all the time in my marriage. My husband's a great husband. That's why I can talk about him. I'll ask him to do a little thing, and his initial first reaction, no. Ask him to go to the store for something, no. Then he grabs his keys and he'll go. (laughs) And it's not a big deal. And usually, what I'm asking him to go and get, or what I'm asking him to go and do, is for his benefit. So I can prepare a meal for him, or I can do something for him. The blessing is in the doing. Some of us, We hear the serving. We hear these, see these ministers. I'm like, no. That's our initial, no. Get up and do it. First of all, it's not that bad. But ultimately, the blessing is in the doing. There are a lot of people out there in this world who know a whole lot about the Bible, maybe even better than a lot of us in here. But are they doing the teachings of Jesus? That's where the blessing is. And last and ultimately, service is love. Service is love. Let me be clear. Service is not about biting your tongue and begrudgingly doing something that you don't want to. How does John set up this whole chapter? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. He emphasized it by how much Jesus loved his disciples. They weren't just random people that Jesus was like, okay, God, I'll do it because you told me to. No, he loved. These were his friends. This was his, he lived with them for three years. He knew everything about him. He loved his own. We don't serve because we have to. God doesn't enable us to do something just so we can stand doing it the ultimate act of service is the fullness of love. God didn't send his son to die for our sins because he had to, for God so loved the world. that he sent his son. It's love. Greg Laurie said, sin didn't hold Jesus on that cross. Love did. Jesus' act of service was ultimately an act of love, even unto the ones who would betray him that very night. That same love, haven't we all betrayed Jesus? That same love we have received. And I feel like the farther that we fall from remembering that love, that first moment of salvation, when we were still sinners, he died for us. The farther we fall from that, the farther we fall from service and wanting to serve. But when we remember the great love that we have received, It is only natural. I have received so much. It only makes sense to extend that love. Because I was once like you. Or maybe your heart is in a bad place right now. But if I know the love that I have received from God, how can I not care? How can I not see others higher than myself when I remember the love that God has for me. I think about the great love chapter that's read at almost every wedding in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we all know the love is patient, the love is kind part, and all of these, and and, you know, all those, those, that list that it speaks. But that chapter begins in this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, can you imagine that? Can you imagine praying and seeing a mountain move? If I even have that kind of faith, but if I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, I think about the rich young ruler. If I give away all I have even, but I have not love, I gain nothing. We want you to serve. We don't want to force you to serve. And when the love of God so compels you, when you fully grasp and understand this love, we won't have to force you to serve. Look, I want our pulpit to be stacked with servants overflowing with the love of God. And I want our facilities ministry to be stacked with servants doing a sacred work because of the overflow in their heart and the love that they have received from God. I want our youth ministry to be stacked in our preschool ministry, not for our glory and not because of look at us and all of our accolades, but because we're following the example of our ultimate leader who was the ultimate servant. So as we call you up into these ministry assignments and all of these things, know you are graced for every assignment. You are graced for anything that may be asked of you. We have the example of it from Jesus himself. If I have set that example for you, do it unto others. This is the kind of church that I want to see. I want ALCF. When God looks upon ALCF, I don't want to be sending up a noisy cymbal or a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I want this place to send up a pleasing aroma of sacrifice and service to God. Let's pray. God, it uh, boggles my mind how much... You love us. How well you love us. How much you humiliate yourself for us who don't even understand what you're doing. All of us in here have walked away from you at one point or another. But God, it's not because we deserve your love. It was your will to reunite us with you through your son Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood, the atoning of our sins that we might again live in fellowship with you. God, we thank you. May we never lose the wonder of the cross. May we never lose the wonder of what you have done for us. May we be conscious of it every waking hour. God, because if we are, serving comes naturally. We have received so much from you, God. Let us be an extension of it. Let us be the ones who don't just listen and admire, but do. Let us love one another well. And as you said, let this world know that we are your disciples by our love. We pray that you would have your way in Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. That we would make you known by our service and by our love. Lord, receive our worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.